The Biden administration recently announced support for suspending COVID-19 vaccine patents from companies like Pfizer and Moderna to allow companies outside the United States and Europe to manufacture the drugs that they did not create. What should we think of these proposals and what will be their impact on the development of life-saving vaccines? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. Joining me today to discuss the topic of the vaccines and how to evaluate this recent, this recent policy of proposed patent waivers is Professor Adam Mossoff. Uh, Adam Mossoff is professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He's a senior fellow and chair of the Forum for Intellectual Property at the Hudson Institute, a visiting intellectual property fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and a member of the board of directors of the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding. He's published extensively on the theory and history of how patents and other intellectual property rights are the property are property rights that should be legally secured to innovators and creators. Uh, his scholarship has uh, been relied on by the Supreme Court, by other U.S. federal agencies, and he's been uh, invited a number of times to testify before the U.S. Congress. His articles have appeared in such places as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, and other outlets. So welcome, Adam. We're happy to have you uh, on today to discuss this very important issue. Thanks, Matt. It's a real pleasure to be here. So uh, we should start, I think, by giving our audience a little bit of context about this issue and, and how it has developed in uh, recent weeks. Uh, so as I understand it, there was, there was speculation uh, for a number of weeks about what position the Biden administration would take on the enforcement of patents internationally. Uh, the speculation came to an end on May 5th with a tweet from the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, which I think we can put on screen, where the Trade Representative said the U.S. supports the waiver of IP protections on COVID-19 vaccines to help end the pandemic and will actively participate in WT negotiation, WTO negotiations to make this happen. Uh, now I should also mention, interestingly, that, that uh, about a month ago, before this policy was actually announced, you, Adam, uh, wrote a, an article, published an article in the Virginian Pilot, uh, anticipating that this uh, move might be made, but arguing that it would be unjust and that there would actually be no reason, there's no reason to think that it would actually help increase production of the vaccine, which is the justification cited uh, for the policy. Uh, so you were uh, somewhat prophetic in, in saying that this would be one of the most important decisions made on the subject. Uh, it did actually happen. Can you fill us in a little bit more on, on what exactly uh, the administration is proposing to do with regard to patents? Uh, what's the role of the WTO here and uh, the, uh, there's, a, there's talk of something called the TRIPS waiver. Maybe you can fill us in on that too. Uh, and then uh, we'll talk more about what you think of it. But what's, what are the details of what's going to happen here? Sure, it, that's a really great question, uh, Ben. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a complex issue involving our international treaties um, and the obligations under our treaties to respect intellectual property, uh, and other countries' obligations as well. So 
this is all occurring at the World Trade, Org World Trade Organization, the WTO, one of the organs of the United Nations, uh, which uh, has authority and governs kind of the, the negotiation of international treaties uh, that pertain to economic issues and intellectual property is one of those. And in 1994, um, uh, many countries uh, agreed to a treaty called TRIPS. It stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. Um, and the purpose of TRIPS was to both kind of harmonize intellectual property protections uh, throughout the, the world, given that products are sold globally now, um, but also to try to uh, incentivize developing countries to provide for intellectual property protections themselves. Um, and so it created a bunch of of incentives, trade benefits, and things of that sort uh, for countries to enact patent laws and copyright laws if they didn't have them. But it also provided mechanisms for punishing them and sanctioning them if they did not at least protect TRIPS member countries' intellectual property rights, since intellectual property rights are secured under each country's laws. Um, and it also provides a mechanism for, uh, for um, filing complaints, a, a, just a, a type of dispute resolution process for, for a country that is violating or not respecting the rights of other, um, <clears throat> other countries. And, um, and so, and if they're found not to be, that they will then can have, they can have sanctions brought against them uh, on, those, uh, on those grounds. Um, and so this is all occurring at the WTO. So, so the Biden administration's announcement is not about US domestic patent law, or at least not yet. It's about um, the TRIPS agreement and whether there will be a wholesale waiver, a wholesale essentially nullification of TRIPS for all intellectual property rights that, per that pertain to COVID vaccines, drugs, and other treatments. And so then what, what is it that the Biden administration is proposing that the WTO do exactly with regard to these patents through this? Uh, <laughs> TRIPS waiver? Yeah, that's a really great question because the actual language hasn't even been proposed yet. So, um, <clears throat> so what happened was is that India and South Africa proposed back in September to, uh, to the World Trade Organization that there be a wholesale waiver of all intellectual property rights, especially patents, but includes other intellectual property rights. And I think we'll wanna talk about that a little later um, <clears throat> for all COVID related treatments. And, um, and, it, and they've proposed these waivers before in other instances for AIDS, uh, for AIDS uh, treatments and things of the sort. And it really, most people didn't expect it to go anywhere because the G7 countries, which uh, have uh, very, uh, offer very strong protections for intellectual property rights generally, have always opposed these proposals in the past. And the WTO works on consensus. So you have to have every country agree to it. And so um, it's the extent that the United States consistently opposed these in the past, they didn't expect it to go anywhere. Um, now that actually the U.S. has come out and supported it, which is unprecedented, has never happened before, um, the, the proponents for this waiver, and, and, it, and, it's not, and so India and South Africa specifically, but all of the academic supporters and, 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 and so-called, quote, public interest, unquote, organizations that supported it, um, that they will now actually have to put together some language <laughs> Uh, what actually is this that will be the content of this legal agreement that will bind all these countries uh, that have agreed to TRIPS. Um, and then each country will then have to implement the terms of that waiver in their own laws. 
Um, and so this is actually process, this is just the start of a long process now, which will probably not conclude until what is expected to be in the fall when the WTO will probably adopt the waiver as expected. I know you said it's, it's hard to answer questions about what exactly this is going to do because there's not actually any language that's been agreed to yet, but what would you expect to come from it? Would you expect that they would agree for an indefinite waiver or or would they agree to it for a delimited period of time or something like that? So that's so that those are some of the really interesting questions. And clearly the Biden administration didn't think any of this through. <laughs> uh, and and the proponents really haven't thought much of this through, um, largely because the proponents are not responding to the pandemic per se. Um, so South Africa, India, and, and, and other countries that have uh, who, who pushed for this waiver um, have, as I mentioned, pushed for waivers in the past. So this is the same group of people who have always been put, uh, who have been fighting against and opposing intellectual property. So they're just, they're acting on, you know, Rahm Emanuel's very infamous declaration back in 2008, started the Great Recession, right? never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and so they just took advantage of this crisis as a way to attack intellectual property. Um, so the, you know, now that the U.S. has announced its support, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, which opposed it, and, and, and other people such as myself and others that have been pointing out, say, have been identifying some of the difficulties and problems. And so there will be probably some negotiations over the scope of this. But the idea, if you were maybe to have a kind of a rough guess, is that they will probably limit it just to the pandemic just to treatments for COVID-19. So it'll be probably temporarily limited and limited in scope in terms of at least the nature of the IP in terms of what it covers, just treatments for COVID such as vaccines like Pfizer and, 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 and uh, Moderna's uh, mRNA vaccine and J&J's uh, standard vaccine and things of that sort. Okay, I, mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see uh more about how the details of this unfold, but uh, I don't think that should stop us from uh, forming a view of what's been proposed. So can you tell us more about your basic view of this of this overall proposal uh, and, and, and maybe add to that a little bit about your overall view of the importance of intellectual property rights as well? Great. Yes, those are great questions because the, the specific details of what happens with this proposal and what and the exact nature of how the waiver is framed and, and, is, and is approved by the W by the WTO in the fall, it, that that's those are minor detail points because the reality is is that this is unprecedented, which is true. The U.S. has never supported a wholesale waiver of intellectual property protection like this before, and it's a disaster. It is completely false. It was driven by false claims, false claims about intellectual property allegedly blockading or stifling the development and distribution of vaccines and drugs. And it, it, and it, and it completely undermines the whole function of intellectual property and in providing reliable and effective protections to innovators and creators who engage in massive amounts of labor over many, many years to create through you know, rationally guided you know, productive uh, activities these incredible life-saving technologies. So I just want to be very clear and adamant about this from the get-go. There is zero evidence, zero, that patents or any intellectual property right has blockaded or stifled the development or distribution of any vaccines or drugs. In fact, the evidence is all to the contrary. Uh, it, is, uh, it was, in fact, 
I have to say was, because it was the reliable and effective patent rights that have been provided for decades to all of the innovators in what we now call the biotech revolution, which the United States took the lead on starting in 1980, while the rest of the world uh, waited and, and thought, mm, this is kind of a un uncertain area. And this, is, this involves, you know, genetically modifying organisms, and we don't know if this is right. The United States said, no, this is exactly what patents are supposed to protect. This is innovation. This is the creation of new values that make possible thriving, flourishing human life. And we said, certainly we will protect this. And this is exactly why the biotech revolution occurred in the United States and has given us incredible, incredible, you know, I use the word miraculous, uh, um, uh, developments in the past several decades. I mean, conditions that were just, that were death sentences, even 20 years ago, diabetes, hepatitis, many forms of cancer are now completely manageable day-to-day -day conditions thanks to the biotech revolution and the incredible drugs and treatments that that has made possible. And, the, and, and this pandemic has proven that again and again and again. Um, I don't know if people know the details, but you know, we all have heard, or perhaps some of you have heard that Moderna invented its mRNA vaccine in two days. A lot of people don't realize that BioNTech, which is the company that partnered with Pfizer, uh, BioNTech was the one that actually invented it, the vaccine. It used its mRNA technology to invent its vaccine in two hours. Um, and so the Federal Dr uh, Drug Administration, the FDA, had vaccines in February of 2020. I mean, so the one-year delay, which itself is unprecedented, a one-year development of multiple vaccines to treat a novel virus that's causing a worldwide pandemic, that one-year delay was entirely the result of federal regulatory blockades at the FDA uh, in not permitting these vaccines and drugs to be distributed to people in the healthcare market. And their ability, the mRNA vac uh, technology itself was produced by innovators investing billions of dollars and thousands and thousands of labor hours over decades to create this new technology. And it's an incredible cutting edge technology. Um, and to pull out the rug from innovators like this to say, yes, you can create, you can invest, you can develop something, you know, the, this pinnacle of human rational achievement. And by saying, but then the moment there's an emergency, there's a moment there's a need of someone in the world to, to, to get this drug or vaccine. And there's some reason that we can concoct that they're not getting it, we will take away your rights. That just will destroy the whole function and reason why we have an IP system or any uh, reliable system run by the rule of law that secures property rights to people. So you, you mentioned in your answer that one of the reasons that we have this system of intellectual property rights is to, is to reward innovation. Uh, with that in mind, can you say a little more about what you would expect the most realistic uh, consequences of, of waiving these rights will be. It's a little hard to imagine that, uh, I guess, uh, all innovation would come to an end, but uh, there's got to be some kind of consequence here. So uh, how, would you, how would you try to, and I know it's hard to prognosticate, especially because you don't know exactly the form the policy is going to take, but what do you think is the most likely result? Yeah, so um, I would like to talk about the result, but I do want to talk about one other issue, which is, uh, which is related to uh, my point about how there's zero evidence that patents have been a blockade. But people have been hearing how people have not been getting access to vaccines and other drugs. So what is causing the, the blockade? What is causing uh, the, the problems? 
and as I mentioned, it's not intellectual property. Uh, it is um, its manufacturing capabilities. It's having a distribution infrastructure. Um, so you know, refrigeration capabilities and 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 roads to reach people in communities way out in the rural areas in India and other developing countries. Um, and it's having a skilled workforce. I mean, the mRNA technology is cutting edge technology. It is extremely difficult to figure out how to use and to mass produce a vaccine from this, um, which involves uh, which involves elements, I, I think, from like 60 different countries um, in terms of just raw materials and the high-end technology needed and the skill set needed to then mass produce it at a quality level that that leads to an efficacious vaccine. And I'm not talking about the 50% efficacious le level of the vaccine of China. I'm talking about like the 95% level that we're expecting and we have from Moderna and Pfizer um, that like that's really the difficult issue. And so this is what this waiver is really about at the end of the day. And there was a bait and switch. The moment the waiver was approved, all of the advocates for it said, oh yeah, you're right. It's really not about patents uh, because patents haven't been a problem. It's about technical know-how and trade secrets. And so ultimately this is gonna be what, what we call in the innovation space, tech transfer. It's, and which is the transfer of knowledge and technology from one group or organization or jurisdiction to another. And so what ultimately, to the extent that this waiver, if it's going to have any meaning, it's going to have to mandate through coercive threat of the law um, that we transfer, our, that, that Moderna and Pfizer and other com companies transfer their trade secrets and skills to China, Russia, India, essentially any country that demands it. Um, because that's the problem in those countries is that they, they're, they need to set up their, their manufacturing facilities. And they can't. The patents aren't going to help them set up those manufacturing facilities. It's, it's our know-how. And so we are, we are you know, gonna tell our innovators, you've invested all this time, you've created all this incredible, valuable knowledge, technical knowledge um, that is yours under standard legal protections, under longstanding uh, um, uh, expectations of all uh, creators and innovators. In fact, this was in the United States' greatest contributions to intellectual property was that we protected intellectual property as a property right. Um, and, you know, that doesn't matter. The moment there's a so-called emergency somewhere in the world or in some place, you know, we will actually uh, um, uh, take that away from you coercively. And, um, and it's not going to stop with COVID. Um, so AOC tweeted the day of the announcement by Ambassador Tai, um, let's do insulin next. Um, so because High prices are allegedly preventing people from getting insulin. By the way, it has nothing to do with patents either. It's totally parallel to the to the COVID waiver. Um, the patents have all expired on insulin. So that again, the blockade in insulin is regulatory FDA regulatory blockades. But it doesn't matter. They're you're using this as an excuse to attack intellectual property. And so this so this course transfer that's going to have a real impact on people as well as the undermining of the stability and predictability of patent rights more generally and so the message we're sending to them is hey yes invest billions of dollars it's a, uh, the the most recent study sh shows that it, that each successful drug that is sold in the marketplace um so the, uh, that first pill that is taken by a patient um <clears throat> uh 
rep, uh, started as 10,000 molecules that were originally investigated and researched for potential activity against the illness that is that that pill is now treating, um, and represents up to 10 to 15 years of research and development and, and more than $2.6 billion. Um, no one will engage in that if they are told, yes, and you have a mere privilege, a mere kind of you know, paper right that we will choose to restructure and take away from you at any moment that we deem. That's not, that's not a system of rule of law, and that's certainly not what we mean when we protect the rights of life, liberty, and property. So it sounds like there, you're saying there are two really important factors here. One is that we're not even just talking about the, wave, the waiver of a patent. We're also talking about this forced tech transfer, which means that the penalty is even bigger than you might imagine. But then there's also the factor of the amount of work that goes into developing these drugs in the first place. So the, the bigger the penalty and the amount of work that it takes to actually produce it, the less incentive overall to engage in all of that work. Uh, is, is that a fair summary? Yes, yes. I mean, and, and we, already, you, we all understand this point already implicitly without even, for, before we even learn about intellectual property, because this is a, this is a lesson that we know about farmers farmers and the green revolution that occurred in the 20th century that you know prompted by genetic genetic uh, modification of wheat and things of that sort what farmer will spend a year because it's a year right tilling the soil uh, you know planting the planting the seeds weeding you know spraying pesticides killing then 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 harvesting the crops and then collecting them taking them to you know, the, the mill, you know, it's a lot of labor before they've sold a single fruit of their labors as the famous metaphor is, is framed. When no farmer will say, yeah, I'm gonna do that if I don't, am not secured the fruit of my labors. And this is why this is a really powerful longstanding metaphor in property law generally. And you know, John Locke uses it, that you know, the point of property is to secure to people the fruits of their productive labors. And this is exactly what patents do. And when you don't secure to people the fruits of their productive labors, then the creations of their rational mind, then um, they don't produce and, and, and they won't produce and they shouldn't produce because then they're, they're being treated as a, as, as a metaphorical slave or literally a slave for other people. And just to clarify one point of fact, you, you, you've, you've stressed how much work it goes into developing uh, these innovations. You also said that it took only a couple of days to create the, uh, the mRNA vaccines, but that's because they had spent decades developing the mRNA technology, generally speaking, which the very specific virus could then get plugged into. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yes, I mean, and, and that's what I was mentioning, or uh, I was referring to earlier when I said that, you know, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is, as I want to stress again, is historically unprecedented. Um, you know, COVID-19 is not going to be a repeat of the 1917-1918 Spanish flu, when an estimated 59, 50 million people died around the world, uh, when the world population was just 15% of what it is today. Um, and that's because of the responses of companies like Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna and J&J and Gilead and all the others. And they had, because what they had at hand already in January of 2020 was a massive infrastructure that they had spent billions of dollars creating over the past several decades through their productive labor and investments in terms of developing the technical know-how, learning about DNA and then RNA, 
developing the infrastructure, um, the, uh, the, the, the scientific infrastructure, but not just that, the commercial infrastructure. So the agreements and information sharing agreements between all of the different companies is incredibly complex. Um, the amount of commercial agreements and sharing of information between companies. The example of this is Bionitech, uh, partnered with Pfizer because Biontech actually came up with the innovation, but they didn't have the manufacturing capabilities or the distribution capabilities, so they couldn't scale production, so they entered into a commercial agreement. But commercial agreements are only possible if you have property rights, if you have effective property rights. The subject matter of any agreement, of any contract is property. And so this is what facilitated all of this was the patent system and the security of patents in these, all of these biotech innovations of the past several decades. So this is what led to this explosive response. The uh, Biotech Innovation Organization has a, has a COVID-19 tracker for tracking the amount of actual molecules and drugs and other therapeutic treatments that are being researched. And in May of 2020, it was something like 450 active treatments for COVID-19 were currently under research or development. And by September, it was, all, it was 760. I mean, that has never occurred. And that was all made possible by this foundation, this launching pad that was built by the patent system. And I wanna to emphasize too that, as you mentioned, uh, the mRNA technology was produced and created through all, uh, two decades of work by the founders of people at Bionitech and at Moderna, who did this on the basis uh, uh, of their own money and their own effort. It was not created by the government. Um, uh, and, and there was, and, and except for a very teeny tiny amount of, uh, of money provided to Moderna by the D Department of Defense, it was almost all entirely through uh, private funding. And I want to come back to the issue of uh, government funding uh, shortly, because especially we're getting some questions about that already. Uh, but yeah, to I, do that, I, I want to I actually ask you a, a few kind of devil's advocate questions. I, I've read now a number of articles uh, by people who advocate these waivers. I've made a list of what <laughs> I think are the more persuasive sorts of arguments that they are giving in favor of them. And so start with the issue of, uh, innovation incentivization, which you've, you've suggested is one of the major reasons we have intellectual property rights. When you argue that, I think the critics will say, or the other side will say, aren't you mm -hmm. in effect justifying patents and copyrights and other forms of intellectual property on the basis of sort of the economic benefits they have on the public, on the, on the public good, the, the common welfare. But then if that's the case, if that's their justification, when you have a situation where, let's say, there's very large people around, number of people around the world who are in desperate need of this vaccine, uh, doesn't the public welfare, the common good, uh, demand at least the temporary, the temporary restriction of these uh, patents? If the whole reason to give them in the first place was public benefit? Yeah, these are great questions, and 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 they really are legitimate confusions. Um, especially given the prevalence of the arguments that one sees um, in newspapers and in the policy debates and even by um, and even the legal literature. Uh, so if, first of all, just because one argues that a that something is right that um, leads to good consequences doesn't mean that you're that you are engaging in a necessarily utilitarian or in a more philosophical frame or consequentialist argument as such. Um, 
one of the keys to understanding whether something is right, whether it accords with the facts of nature and whether it's consistent with the requirements of a flourishing human life is that it works and it makes it possible for you to flourish and to succeed. The founders of, this, of our country, even John Locke, who, who animated them and inspired them, understood this. This is why they said in the Declaration of Independence, right, that it's the purpose of government to protect the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if one takes the, the, the point that you just made uh, all the way to its logical conclusion, one would have to conclude, well, the founders were basically utilitarians because they said the whole point is the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> but no, what they're saying is it's the protection of rights uh, and, of course, the fight to life, liberty, and property, which is what makes possible people to have the freedom and the capability then to pursue happy, flourishing lives and people having been happy and flourishing themselves in a system of limited government and run by the rule of law then makes possible society to flourish more generally because everyone it's, it, it, that makes up society is flourishing and happy. And by the way, they applied this exact framework to intellectual property, to the patents and copyrights that they authorized Congress to secure in the US Constitution, which itself was unprecedented. Never before in human history had a, had a founding document authorize the government to protect patents and copyrights. And by, in fact, I always like to point out as an aside, it's the only place in the constitution proper. So the constitution that was written in 1787, pre-Bill of Rights, where one finds the word right even used where Congress is authorized to secure the exclusive right to authors and inventors to their respective writings and discoveries. And, and so, and you know, they understood that this was a fundamental uh, 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 property right that had to be protected because it's what drove so many other property rights. In fact, it's what makes property possible is the kind of the, um, and this is Ayn Rand's even much more explicit insight because their understanding was not explicit as explicit as this, they kind of implicitly got it, that it's the rational mind, which actually is what is the driver and creator of all values. And it's the rational mind that is ultimately uh, is, is being, it's the products of the rational mind that are being secured by intellectual property. So it's not a purely consequentialist or so-called utilitarian argument when one says the reason for why we have these protections is because this is what makes possible people to produce in the first place is, is exactly why you want protections of rights is because it makes possible flourishing happy lives. Um, so uh, now uh, you, you also asked an additional question. Well, yeah, but then what about emergencies? Well, emergencies are situations where then rights become impossible to recognize and enforce a true emergency a true emergency is you know is a situation where you know there's you know uh, a, you know, a massive massive uh, you know, war or something of this sort and you know and and things of this sort I don't I wouldn't classify what has happened with COVID-19 as a quote emergency unquote it's or at least an emergency in the context of we have to set aside rights and protections to accord with this um, I think that it, you know, it raises important fundamental questions about scopes of legal liability and things, scope of legal, legal liability between individuals as to infections and things of this sort. But this is exactly what our system is designed to accommodate and to address. Um, and if, and at the end of the day, emergencies are always the excuse. Everything is being always framed as an emergency. I mean, this is, I mentioned it earlier, you know, Rahm Emanuel's infamous statement, you know, you never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and as AOAC, AOAC said, you know, let's do insulin next because those are emergencies to these people. Um, 
And if that's your baseline, emergencies, which creates needs of other people, which then created a basis for uh, disrespecting individual rights, then individual rights are no longer a principle that we're acknowledging. The principle is need. And then it just becomes fighting over the few scraps that, have, that, that remain and that producers will no longer produce. Okay, so second, second devil's advocate question, following up on that one, I, I get the point that you're making that this is a fundamentally moral perspective related to individual rights. The uh, economic factors uh, are maybe a secondary aspect of that, of that equation. But then if it, if it really is an individual rights perspective that you're bringing to bear here, uh, mm -hmm. wouldn't the individual rights perspective say that if you're going to secure a property right, it's got to be property that you have rightfully acquired through your own means. And this is then I think where the question uh, someone on Zoom asked is relevant. Uh, on Zoom they ask, when companies or investigators accept uh, federal support through the NIH mm -hmm. or the NSF, doesn't the government retain the rights to all intellectual property and inventions? And I take it the idea here is, well, yes, if they had, if they had to develop these drugs entirely through their own means without any kind of government assistance, then they'd have the right to secure their patents entirely. But since that's not the case, what are we to think of it? Our, uh, that's an excellent question. And one hears that all the time. Um, you know, every, everyone you know, responds to me on Twitter by saying, oh, well, the government created this, the government funded it. So, you know, so they don't have a right to it at all. <laughs> uh, it's a very, very common prevalent claim. Um, and there's a widespread confusion about this. Um, it's both, you know, uh, and it's very important to, to, to get uh, clear on the facts um, because there's a lot of factual misunderstandings and to get clear on the moral principle of the, of the matter. Um, I'll start with the facts. So as a preliminary matter, as I mentioned, um, there was no, no government support uh, provided to BioNTech and Pfizer in creating their, their vaccine. Um, uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, that the government adopted um, was, represented advanced purchase agreements by the, by the federal government. Federal government saying, if this is approved by the FDA, we'll, we'll buy this. Um, by the way, the federal government didn't give them any choice because the federal government said, we're going to control this. So if you want to distribute your vaccine, we have to buy it. I mean, that was their only choice. Um, and uh, or two, it, it assisted them with setting up some of the distribution and, and, and manufacturing capabilities so, so, that, uh, so that they could hit the ground running when the FDA finally authorized the use of this of, of the vaccines 10 months later. Um, the actual creation of the vaccine itself was not done with government money. Um, and I mean, and I have to emphasize that. Because uh, there's a lot of claims about that. Oh, the U.S. government created mRNA technology. No, it didn't. It didn't at all. In fact, it was so cutting edge in the 1990s. The person who did create it, the, uh, the doctor who's the founder at Biotech, she was actually applying for public grants because they all apply for public grants, and she kept getting denied because she was being told, "You're insane. This is impossible. This can't happen." And she just said, "All right, well, I I, I believe in this. This is true, and I'm going to pursue it." And she ended up getting private funding to develop it. And so, um, so. It's uh, second of all, it's not true that if the government provides some funding, the government owns it. That's not the law. The law is it, regardless of whether the government provides some funding, regardless of how much, um, then the government has certain rights to license the technology under very certain narrow conditions. And the conditions are that the technology or, or product, the, pat, the patented product, is not being deployed commercially at all. Um, that's essentially what the, the requirement is. That's this a law called the Bayh-Dole Act. 
um, the Bayh-Dole Act actually was enacted by Congress in 1980 because of the exact problem of government funding. The government had been funding so much research since World War II, there were questions about what, who owned this um, and people weren't getting patents. And Congress heard testimony that there were literally, or there were literally new inventions that were sitting in labs that no one would touch credible medical uh, cures and discoveries because the, uh, it, the, the ownership status, the property rights status in these inventions was unclear given the government funding for it at some point or other in the process. And because you need property rights to enter into commercial agreements and to create the value chain to manufacture, produce, and distribute these things. And so the government enacted the Bayh-Dole Act. The whole purpose of the Bayh-Dole Act is to say, if you're the researcher, you're the one who engaged in the inventive labors. It doesn't matter if at some point or other, you got one cent of federal funding, you can get a patent. So, it's the, so the actual rule is the exact opposite. The creator, the inventor of a product or service gets the patent, has the property right in it because they created it. And then if the, and then if you then, then if you sit on it and don't do anything with it. So for instance, there's no one getting any vaccines or there's no one getting it remdesivir or any other drug treatments, then the government can step in and license that patent without your authorization to other people to manufacture it. But clearly people are getting vaccines and clearly people are getting drugs and other types of things. And so the, this is called the march in right or the march in power of the Bayh-Dole Act. And it's never been used because products are commercialized. Um, third is, I really wanna hit back on the whole premise also that the government just funds all research and it doesn't. Um, the government funds actually, relatively speaking, a small amount of what is actually very far upstream research. Um, so the, uh, to give you a sense, total private sector funding of, of biomedical uh, research in 19, uh, 2018, which is the last year we have the data for, was 100, approximately $140 billion. Um, uh, so, and that's, it was in, that's sunk cost, that's research that they spent before they got, saw a dime on. Uh, that same year, NIH, which is the largest funding uh, public entity in the country, or in the world, actually, uh, provided $30 billion in, in research. So you, you have a four to one, um, um, or three to one uh, ratio there. Now, most of that research money, though, from the NIH, as I mentioned, goes to upstream uh, very far upstream basic research. Remember I mentioned that, you know, for every pill that's, that's, uh, that's provided to a patient that represents 10,000 molecules that were originally investigated, that's where that money is going to. The money is not going to the actual development of the pill itself. That pill actually is the byproduct of massive amounts of funding. And, and it's just, so the actual reality is, is that most of our ongoing medical innovations in our country and in the world more generally are driven by and are supported by private funding, not public funding, despite the claim to the contrary. Now, um, one could still say, yeah, but there's still some public funding, right? <laughs> so you can still, so what about that public funding? Well, this is the problem. You know, this is the problem with gut, and then this is the, raises the moral principle. This is the problem with government funding more generally of anything, um, you know, the, because this is the principle that's invoked, was invoked by President Obama when he said, you didn't build that, when, uh, when he was talking about entrepreneurs and business persons. Now, he literally wasn't saying, if you actually go back and read the full quote that, you know, what he says after he said that infamous sentence, he doesn't say, you didn't build your business. 
what he says is you didn't build the roads, you didn't pay the teachers, you didn't you didn't create the unit the public universities that made it possible for you to have a successful business. And so he was making a fundamental claim that because the government actually does all of these things, then the government ultimately, the society more generally in his mind, his collectivist conception, actually has this, has this claim to actually the, what the individual creator innovator did. And th that is um, uh, uh, just, um, I, I lack the term for it properly. It is, it is a moral crime to denigrate the innovative creative labors of these researchers who create things like mRNA technologies or who create all of these other incredible uh, uh, things because the government has not made it possible for them to live and work in an environment where there's only private funding of research, where the government funds so much of the basic research and the universities that you can't actually have a job anymore unless you do, unless you apply for some government funding along with all your other grants that you receive from private funding sources. If I take my uh, devil's advocate cap off for a moment, I would, I would, I would uh, mention that I mean, it's really uh, relevant, it seems, that uh, the, the government, the existing structure of government funding often makes alternatives impossible. You mentioned uh, a while ago uh, that the the pharmaceutical companies who developed the COVID vaccine uh, weren't even given the option of selling this on the market. That the government told them in advance, "We're not going to let you do it," and we're going, to, which basically means the only way that they can get funding for this is if they take uh, they take uh, the government payments for the purchases. Uh, it's really kind of they're making them an offer they can't refuse, quite literally. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you know, the same the same point would apply to all kinds of other things in life. Uh, uh, we, if we mm -hmm. drive on public roads, is is does this mean now we don't really get to own our cars? We don't get to have property rights in our cars or in any of the businesses that we uh, create uh, using an automobile? Uh, I mean, this argument would would completely negate uh, the basis for any kind of property rights uh, throughout the economy. Um, and and but to put my hat for back on. And it's used yeah. for that purpose. I want to emphasize that again, you know, because why stop at direct government funding? Like Obama said, President Obama said, right, you didn't fund the public university professors who taught you. And that's true. Or the public school teachers. So, hey, if, if, you know, there's not, no difference in principle between being learning, you know, uh, all of your biochemistry knowledge from someone who works at a public university than the NIH providing you know, you a small grant uh, at some point during your research activities. So uh, put my devil's advocate hat back on. Um, you mentioned the Bayh-Dole Act, which you, you observed was, was created specifically to identify the patent rights uh, that innovators have, even in the face of uh, government funding. But if we're gonna go by the, the rules here, if we're gonna look at the actual laws on the books, uh, another point that advocates of these waivers will make is to invoke a fairly obscure section of the U.S. Code, Section 1498, which <laughs> supposedly gives the government the right to use a kind of eminent domain uh, for patents when technology is funded by government money. Uh, doesn't that mean that government still, in spite of what you're saying, at least has the legal right to commandeer these patents under the present circumstances? What about section 1498? Yeah, section 1498. So uh, it, needs a, it needs a spiffy name like Idol or <laughs> something. It's uh, so um, 
So the government, one of the mis un unfortunate mistakes of, of, of the founders of, of natural rights theorists more generally who inspired them was this belief that, the, you know, that you in part transfer your rights to the government when you enter into society. And so governments have this power that they called the eminent domain. It was a phrase coined by a natural rights philosopher, Hugo Grotius, uh, to take property. Um, and so it's in our constitution under the Fifth Amendment, the government nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, so the idea is that, well, the government has this power, but at least should pay you when it exercises this power. So you get something for, for, your, for your, if your labor is when you have your rights violated by the government. Um, and section 1498 is the, is the statutory section that, that allows for, authorizes people to sue the government, um, uh, patent owners, I'm sorry, section 1498 is, is, what, is the section that allows patent owners to sue the government when the government exercises its domain power and so that, that, so that they can receive appropriate, uh, the term in the statute is reasonable and entire compensation. Um, so section 1498 though, is not a price control statute and it's not a statute for the purposes of, of directly interfering or engaging with the market. Now the, the US federal government has passed those, those laws all the time. They, they, 1942, they passed a price control law called the, the, uh, the Price Control Act of 1942. Uh, you know, states have adopted rate regulation statutes under their so-called police powers for regulating the rates that railroads charge and things of this sort. There is no reference in the statute whatsoever to rates, prices, or anything. It's about the government uh, taking a patent um, for use by the government. Um, the examples of the, the cases from the 19th century uh, were examples of the U.S. Army. Um, one very famous case involved the U.S. Army t using a patented tent without, uh, without approval during the Civil War. Another was a patented cartridge box, a, a bullet box that could be uh, where soldiers could carry bullets on them. Um, another involved the U.S. Postmaster. Um, and so there, Section 1498 does not authorize the government to say, I'm taking your patent from you for the purposes of giving it to another company to sell in competition with you to, to private consumers in the private healthcare market. That's not what Section 1498 authorizes. And, it, and, it, and it's never been recognized to authorize anything like that, except by academics. <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of law professors who've written some articles saying, oh, this is actually a price control statute. <laughs> and, it, and it's not that. Now, we shouldn't have, there shouldn't be an eminent domain power in government, ideally. There shouldn't be, a there should, we shouldn't have, a takings clause should be unnecessary in a proper moral government that we really truly respects all individuals' rights to life, liberty, and property. Um, but, you know, but when we do, you have to respect the terms of the takings clause and the terms of the statutes that effectuate the takings clause. And the takings clause is not a price control statute or a price control provision in the constitution either. And I should mention, I, I read the section of the law in question, and uh, the first thing that stood out to me was, it, was that it was primarily about who gets to be sued. And so even, even this section, isn't it primarily saying the person who gets sued when the government uh, expropriates a patent is the government, but that doesn't mean that you can't sue them. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So this this is the problem. Is it's uh, it's a general problem in 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 in, uh, in all law. Governments have also what's called sovereign immunity, um, and so you can't sue the government unless there's a statute that authorizes you to sue them. This includes all, under every provision of the of the Constitution. Um, and so, for instance, when people sue the government for violations of their rights 
under the due process clause or under the 14th amendment, you hear about these lawsuits all the time. They're actually done through federal statutes and the lawyers refer to them as section 1984 or section 1988 uh, cases, because those are actually the statutes that authorize someone to sue the government for a violation of their rights under those particular uh, constitutional provisions. And section 1498 is the statute that authorizes someone to be able to sue the government in its own courts uh, for to seek remuneration for when the government takes and uses um, a, a patent for the government's purposes, not for someone else's purposes. Right. So, okay, so I want to ask one last devil's advocate question. Um, yeah. And this one cuts to the core, I think, of the moral controversy here, and it relates to something that, uh, that uh, someone was asking on YouTube. Uh, but mm -hmm. isn't this a case where basically property rights are being used to allow big companies to profit from the spread of a disease? And isn't that just awful? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing uh, because, uh, I mean, I'm tempted to be kind of uh, uh, you know uh, controversial and say we want them to profit because when a company profiting is a company succeeding, and what does it mean for a pharmaceutical company to succeed? It means that they actually are creating massive amounts of important life-saving drugs that that they are selling in the marketplace and are and for which everyone around the world is benefiting from. And then, and then to say, well, how dare you create this incredible technology that makes it possible for me to live my life, um, and uh, and for uh, because you should have you should have what given it away for free, never produced it in the first place. The norm people forget how incredible our lives are today. Um, the revolution that was wrought not just by the biotech revolution, which I've been emphasizing. But the whole pharmaceutical revolution is less than 100 years old. Um, I mean, this is uh, people. So we've really forgotten what life was like um, before the discovery, early discovery of antibiotics in the, 19, in the late 1920s. Um, so uh, just to give you one example that I like to highlight. Um, so in 1924, so this is less than 100 years ago, President Calvin Coolidge's 16-year-old son died because he was playing tennis on the front lawn of the, of the White House and he injured his little toe and he got a staph infection and he died in a week. He was dead in a week, the president's son, because the antibiotics that are now cheap and prescribed daily and no one thinks twice about taking today, right, hadn't been discovered yet and hadn't been sold and, pro and companies had profited from by selling to invest in and create and continue to engage in creating incredible new products that drove incredible new innovations and, 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 and healthcare. Um, and so, I mean, this is, so this, as I said, this is less than a hundred years ago. Um, and, and patents have been intimately connected with not just the creation of, of or the discovery of these things, because, Humans can invent, and humans have been inventing for, for millennia. <laughs> um, you know, the problem isn't incentivizing people to invent. People are naturally invented, so to speak. This is what it means to be a human. The problem is how do you turn an invention actually into an actual product or service that other people can use and can exchange with the inventor or other people such that it benefits their lives? 
In other words, how do you bridge the gap is the phrase from the lab or the garage to the marketplace. And the only way you bridge that gap is property rights. Nothing else does it because, because there's nothing else that does. Prizes are not property rights. So, you know, because it just falls into the public domain. And then who invests all of the money, the billions of dollars to create the infrastructure necessary to engage in commercial exchanges and agreements, manufacturing, distribution, retail, and ultimate distribution uh, by, uh, to, to consumers. This is, this is the United States' key contribution. We were the first country that took seriously the idea, starting with our very first patent law enacted in 1790, that patents were property rights. And this was key and fundamental to the United States converting within a matter of decades from being primarily an agrarian society to being an advanced industrial country that was challenging England for, for economic dominance on the world stage because of the innovations created by you know, Isaac Singer and the sewing machine and Samuel Morse with the telegraph and Samuel Colt with the repeating firearm and Cyrus McCormick with the first mechanized reaper, um, <clears throat> the harvesting crop and Eli Whitney's cotton gin. Um, and the, the issue wasn't that, oh, they were, you know, that they invented it is that these inventions were converted into real world commercial products. And that was only made possible by recognizing property rights and the ability to use and dispose as secured to you under the law. Um, and this has been fundamental, not just to our industrial revolution in the 19th century, but as I mentioned, the pharmaceutical revolution of the 20th and the biotech revolution of the 21st century. So I take my devil's advocate hat off completely here. And uh, just to say, say one thing, especially about that, that earlier question about profiting off of disease, because I think it's on this kind of question, it's also important uh, that the kind of direct answer to that is that they're not profiting off the disease, they're profiting off of curing the disease or stopping the spread <laughs> that's of a good the disease better way to frame it. in the case yes. of a vaccine. And that's a really important difference. And I think that what you just explained uh, illustrates why that's true. Um, I, I, I really like the way you're framing it. I want to ask you one more question, and then we, we should take a look at some questions that have come in. Um, so you mm -hmm. emphasized at the top of our conversation how it's not the patents that are to blame for uh, the production and distribution problems. You mentioned supply chain bottlenecks, et cetera. But are there any aspects of the supply chain bottleneck uh, production problems that could be remedied through perhaps other changes to the legal system, to our trade policy, uh, if we're concerned at all with uh, allowing people in other countries to get the vaccines that they need to survive, what are some measures uh, that the United States could take that wouldn't involve this gross violation of property rights that the Biden administration is now proposing? Oh, oh perfect question. And, you know, and right off the bat, um, you know, because there are numerous things that we could do that would immediately um, alleviate and, and um, <clears throat> the impact of this pandemic on people around the world. And the first thing is there is currently trade embargoes that limit the ability to transfer vaccines from various countries to other countries. Um, the United States right now legally prohibits you know, exporting vaccines from the United States to other countries. 
Um, and we are sitting on a massive stockpile of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which we're not using, um, <clears throat> given uh, some concerns about its, 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 its total efficacy, because it has some efficacy, just that the, the FDA said that's not good enough. So we're not gonna allow that to be used in the United States. Um, well, look, you know, if you're, you know, 70 or 80% efficacy is pretty good if, you know, if you're facing, you know, death, which is what they're facing around the world at the moment in India and other places. And we should immediately allow these vaccines to be, you know, to uh, be exported to those countries, um, which by the way, then they're going to send a bunch of warehouses and probably not get actually to the people who need them because of all of the underlying infrastructure and distribution problems that, that you have in those countries. But nonetheless, they might get to some people and, and, some pe and that, would, that, would, that would help some people. Um, the other thing is remove all of the regulatory uh, bottlenecks on the actual approval and uh, release of these vaccines. As I mentioned at the very start of our, uh, of our discussion, you know, these vaccines were, the mRNA vaccines were available over a year ago. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the companies that sat on this, it was the FDA that prohibited their distribution. And by the way, it's the same, it's the FDA in other countries, their equivalent of it, that is prohibiting the, the, the distribution of vaccines in those countries. The CEO of Pfizer released a letter um, uh, 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 shortly after the announcement by the, by Ambassador Tai saying, you know, look, I personally called up leaders of various countries to say to them, I want to offer you our vaccine. And they said, your vaccine is new and untested. We don't trust the mRNA vaccine, so we're not going to approve it in our country. What can you do? <laughs> I mean, you're not, at that point, you're, the, the company is not to blame and we shouldn't be blaming the companies. We shouldn't be punishing the companies. We should be punishing the politicians and the regulators and the, and, and the status that are preventing people from getting access to life-saving drugs that could, uh, um, and other types of treatments that they need or could use I think benefits from. I, it's interesting that uh, we talked about Section 1498, and uh, there there was an article I think that you showed me from the New York Times that was uh, published maybe uh, sometime last year, uh, and it was arguing that if we don't invoke Section 1498, uh, we're never going to get even enough vaccines for the United States, let alone for the rest of the world, and yet here we are. Uh, sitting basically on a vaccine surplus. And that's in spite of the fact that uh, these companies weren't able to sell their vaccines on a true free market. I mean, imagine if they had been able to, uh, how much more they would have been able to increase their productive capacity, how much even bigger of a surplus uh, they'd have right now because of that. And then if they were allowed to actually export them to other countries, uh, how many uh, they'd be selling overseas. So it's uh, it's it's truly... Uh, Staggering to consider. Well, maybe if the argument didn't work for the U.S., it would it won't work uh, for the uh, the international scene either. We should take a look at some of the questions that have come in. I, I see at least a couple that I I think are pretty good, and we I'd like to hear your thoughts on. We got an early question on YouTube. Someone asked, "How can you call products of biology intellectual property? What's the alternative for someone?" wanting to produce a vaccine, how can they compete if there is a single solution type? And I, I, the part of the question I think was more interesting is how can a product of biology be considered intellectual property? And I, I can see why a person would want to ask that question. In what sense is this a product yeah. of biology, for instance? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. 
Um, and it's why the rest of the world uh, paused and hesitated uh, 40 years ago um, when the biotech revolution was just starting um, with, with very small startup companies like Genentech, which actually got started on a patent on the first, the ability to create synthetic insulin, um, which has been, has, which has, now there are millions of people who are alive today with diabetes because of cheap access to insulin because of that biotech innovation. But, you know, the, the, the other countries said, this is messing with biological materials and molecules and we shouldn't, this is not something that should be patented. And it is a rule actually in patent law. You can't patent basic facts of nature. Um, <clears throat> so you can't patent a rock on the ground or you can't get a patent on the formula E equals MC squared. These are laws of nature and facts of nature. What you get patents on are values that are created by humans. And notice here, we're not, they're not getting a patent on just a piece of DNA. That's, uh, that's, that's how it's framed off in your DNA patents. It is, it's not the case. What you're getting a patent on is the biological material, the molecule, the, you know, the RNA strand or the synthetic RNA strand that is being used in a medical context to create a vaccine or to create insulin to treat people with diabetes or to create some other type of drug to treat people with AIDS or something of this sort. At that point, it is no longer purely just a biological fact of the world. It is a human value. It's the difference between you know, a plant and a crop. Because you could say the same thing about crops. Crops are just, well, those are plants. How can we have property rights in them? Because we take some plants and we turn them into human values. We turn them into things that through the human rational mind, we figure out this is actually supports us, like wheat. We want to figure out ways to, to support to to create it, to grow it, to make more of it so more of us can live. And if you come up with a new method of harvesting wheat, you can get a patent on it. Cyrus McCormick did on his mechanized reaper. Um, and and or the Green Revolution in the 1950s, uh, where they figured out ways to genetically modify wheat to, to so that we more wheat would be produced. Um, these are human created values, and this is and all values that are created are are rightly and justly the property rights of the people who create those values. And intellectual property represents that par excellence. Yeah, and you've also got to know a little something about the uh, the biological product in question here, and what you needed to do to actually produce this biological product to see that there is an issue of creation here. So it's it's not the case um, that mRNA vaccines are in effect growing on trees and you just uh, pluck them off the tree. I mean, there's mRNA out there in nature, but it was an incredibly sophisticated uh, scientific achievement to isolate which aspect of that molecule is relevant to creating a kind of immunity. Nobody thought it could be done as you mentioned, it was, it was treated with extreme skepticism. Uh, and then of course you had to isolate the genetic code of uh, the COVID uh, virus to be able to transfigure that into a vaccine. And on top of mm -hmm. that, there were all kinds of other technical hurdles. Like when you take just pure mRNA and inject it into the human body, it typically creates a kind of autoimmune response. And so they had to create a special kind of lipid packaging that would allow it to go into the body without creating this autoimmune response. And then that took a lot of testing. So this is, this is no trivial uh, uh, plucking of a fruit off a tree. This is a, a, you know, an incredible uh, act of bioengineering. Um, so it, it's an invention although, uh, more than it is don't, a discovery. Although don't, 
Although don't imply that plucking fruits off trees is, <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, is, is not an active invention either because you have to really know which fruits to pluck and which one, you know, wh wh where are the right ones and what are the false ones? I mean, that at one time was an active invention itself. And what you're describing then, which is, which is exactly right and, it's, and, and, uh, and, and very well stated and summarized is true by the way of all medical treatments. First of all, all drugs are at, at the end of the day, a molecule um, that they discovered ha has, uh, is active against an antigen and an invasion of your body. But if you think about what goes into why it's $2.6 billion, why they investigate 10,000 molecules, because it's not just discovering the molecule, it's then figuring out how to get past the hydrochloric acid in your stomach, how to get it absorbed through the intestinal wall, how to get it into your blood system such that it's not attacked by your immune system. This is, I mean, it's incredibly complex when you think about the achievement of what goes into a pill that you pop in your mouth without thinking twice about it, whether it's an ibu whether it's ibuprofen or whether it's, well, they're gonna have a pill for us to take for the vaccine for COVID by the end of the year. <laughs> so related to that, here's another question that came in through Zoom. Uh, someone asks, most recently a vaccine was discovered for malaria. Do you know how intellectual property rights have played a role in this medical innovation? And correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but I, I believe the person is possibly thinking of yet another mRNA vaccine that's being worked on in relation to malaria. Is that correct? Yes, yes. mRNA technology is the promise that we all uh, have been waiting for from the biotech revolution. Um, you know, they when they when when they mapped the human genome in the 1990s and they, they mistakenly thought that there was really easy basically one-to-one -one correlation between particular gene sequences and, you know, and diseases. And they discovered it's much more complex than that. So, you know, they thought, you know, oh, we're going to have cures for cancer and all sorts of things very quickly. And we did, and we have it. And it's mRNA, this, this technological platform. In fact, mRNA is referred to as a platform technology, precisely these reasons. And right, they, it's not that they've discovered a vaccine. They're now developing using MR, the mRNA platform vaccines for uh, malaria and a vaccine for AIDS um, as the next two developments. Now, if this waiver goes through, which it most likely will, you know, don't expect to see very many more of these being developed um, because you know the the message that's being sent from, by the way, the country that has for 200 years been the leader of the entire world in 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 the in the protection, recognizing the legitimate moral claim of innovators to the property rights in their creations. Um, don't, you know, when we say, nope, we don't recognize this stuff anymore, given uh, someone's need, someone's emergency, um, don't expect much uh, more of these innovations potentially down the road, unfortunately. But right now they, you know, they are investigating these incredible innovations. Yeah, I think uh, that's really important to stress, especially because this isn't just about COVID. It's not just about malaria. It's not just about AIDS. Uh, one of the arguments that you made in your article for the Virginian pilot is you have to take the long view here and uh, there will be more pandemics uh, probably within our lifetime. There certainly will be more diseases. There's already all kinds of diseases out there that we'd like to find vaccines for that exist already. And what mRNA has the potential to do is actually to produce vaccines for each and every one of them. And, uh, mm -hmm. but that's only if there's uh, an incentive on the part of the creators to do it. Uh, and it sounds a lot like what uh, the Biden administration is interested in doing is, is literally killing the goose that has the potential to lay many, many golden eggs for us. 
And we may get, you know, one golden egg as a consolation prize in the short term, but uh, unjustly and uh, at the expense of so much of the rest of our future. Yeah. So uh, I want to thank you, Adam. Uh, I think we should start to wrap up. Uh, there's a few resources that we would like to share with our audience before we do that. So first of all, I want to uh, let our audience know about an essay that Ayn Rand wrote on this subject that uh, I think, Adam, you are you probably have in mind when you are commenting on patents as a kind of individual right. This is where Ayn Rand lays out her theory of how patents and copyrights are forms of individual rights. It's her essay, Patents and Copyrights. You can read it online for free, thanks to the uh, uh, copyright permission of the estate of Ayn Rand. If you go to bit.ly slash patents and copyrights. That's at the Ayn Rand Institute's website. And then I'd also like to let our uh, audience know about your article, Adam. This is uh, Waving Vaccine Patents Would Imperil Public Health. I created a short link for that one too, bit.ly slash waving patent rights and perils. Uh, that's the article you wrote a few weeks ago, uh, about a month ago, I think, which was uh, prophetic, predicting that this was going to be a big deal. And I know that you've you've been making this interview circuits for the last week because uh, basically your your unfortunate prophecy uh, came true. Um, so we'll refer uh, everyone to that article. Uh, also, just uh, want to let people know what they can do. Oh, uh, one more, one more article, and this one's by me actually. Um, I wrote this article a few weeks ago: uh, the unscientific, un-American ethics of vaccine distribution. And this speaks to one of the last topics that we were discussing, Adam, about. Uh, the fact that the government decided from the beginning of the pandemic that it wasn't going to allow uh, vaccines to be sold on a free market, that it was going to be basically centrally plan uh, the purchasing and distribution of them. And uh, this has resulted in a patchwork of double standards in who gets what first. Uh, I talk about some of the philosophic ideas behind uh, the idea that government needed to be in control of this in this article. So if someone wants to learn more about that, go to bit.ly slash unscientific vaccine ethics um, to learn more. I also want to let our audience know that we're going to be doing uh, for our next episode of New Ideal Live, a special episode. We usually do this uh, once a week, but we're actually going to have two episodes this week because of recent events in the Middle East. Uh, on Friday, Elon uh, uh, Giorno, who's my colleague and a senior fellow at ARI, will be interviewed on the topic of the Israel-Hamas crisis. That'll be Friday, this coming May 14th at 12.30 uh, p.m. Pacific, 3.30 Eastern. So stay tuned for that. If you are interested in following us, if you like this broadcast and you'd like to see more, if you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to uh, subscribe to the ARI YouTube channel, hit that bell button to get notifications for when we post new materials or go live. Also consider liking this episode and commenting on it if you're watching the recording, because that's going to help the algorithm attract more attention to our YouTube channel. Same story if you're watching on Facebook, please like this episode or write a comment that also helps nudge up uh, the episode in, in the algorithm's uh, uh, sensitivity. Uh, last of all, if you have questions about what came up in today's episode, consider writing us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in. We respond to many of the questions. We also take suggestions for new topics that we might have future episodes on. And uh, we also periodically have Q&A episodes where we answer some of the questions that have come in. 
So uh, thanks again, Adam, very much. This was, I think, a very enlightening hour of conversation for our audience. We always appreciate it when you bring uh, your expertise and your passion uh, on this very important subject to the table. Thank you. I think it was a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed chatting about with you in particular about these issues a lot. So thanks, Ben. You're welcome. So thanks, everyone. We will see you again this coming Friday. Until then, uh, think uh, rational thoughts about this and other issues. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.